Good morning. I think we're going to start just a little bit early this morning, just because we can, and um, and there may be some questions at the end, uh, because this this topic tends to generate some conversation. And um, I, I do. Joe made a very good point in a sermon. I, I do hope the kids are able to go back to school. Although I heard Wednesday it's going to be 70 degrees, so, so it might be too hot for the kids. The temperature <laughs> differentiation might be too much for them to handle. So it's probably better that they stay at home. Um, I mean, I, I told Palmer Kennedy, the headmaster of the Advent School, that my daughter Lily, who's in 4K, I said at this point she won't be able to read when she's 15. Uh, and, and these emails of, we hope that you've enjoyed the special time with your kid, like special time. I know what that means. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and Lord, we pray for our church, uh, not just the Advent, but uh, your church universal. Uh, we pray that we might uh, indeed uh, be a hospital for sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the two things that got me thinking about, uh, well, let's just recap. So uh, these heart for things are not things that, that Andrew has come up with, but are things the Advent is already doing, but it's just an easy way to distill and explain what it is that we do around here uh, as we play to our strengths. And one is that we have a heart, we have a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only message that will change people's lives. And the gospel, uh, shorthand, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life, full stop. That's it. No, no add-ons to that. Uh, we also have a passion and a heart uh, for those who have not heard about the gospel, and we talked about that last week. And this week we're going to talk about uh, the gospel for those, uh, we have a heart for those who have been burned by the church. And then next week, we're gonna, well not, actually next week, uh, we're going to have Cameron, he's doing a three-part series. Uh, unfortunately, uh, well I guess it really depends on how you look at it. Uh, Cameron is in Breckenridge, Colorado skiing with the senior high boys. Uh, somebody's got to do it. And um, and so uh, they're off this week. But Cameron's third part uh, of joy in the midst of your worst nightmare will be in this class. And then we'll pick up the following week uh, with having a heart for the city of Birmingham. Okay. So his class will be in here next week. Um, two things, uh, well, three things really it got me thinking about this. One is that the Advent seems to be filled with a lot of people who are recovering Christian types, right? People who had a bad experience growing up in the church for one reason or another, but came to the Advent, heard the gospel preach, and thought, wow, uh, this, is, this is similar, but there's something very different uh, about this place, and, and this, this is something that I can get into. That's one thing. And the Advent has always had uh, a ministry there. I mean, it's very rare. I mean, this has, I think, been the case for a very long time at the Advent. I think part of it is just simply that we're an institution uh, that stands apart. I mean, we're, we're the Advent, right? And when, and when you say that to someone outside of Birmingham, they kind of look at you like, what is that, right? What is, what is the Advent? And um, exactly. So, I mean, we're sort of this institution. It's a safe place to go. You know, it, it's, it's easy to invite people. And one of the great things that I, I really like seeing is uh, people who I know for a fact go to non-denominational, very large church. We're a very large church, but some of the non-denominational mega churches in Birmingham. But I always see them on Christmas Eve and Easter here. Uh, very interesting. So, uh, 
So it's an easy, accessible place to go, I think, by its nature, being the institution that it is here in Birmingham. Uh, but more than that, it's, it's the preaching and ministry that has happened here for years and years and years. Uh, that especially came to the fore during the time of Paul Zoll, uh, where, uh, I mean, 1950s giant crab movies were referenced often in sermons. And so there was a, like, a, you just came to hear what he might say. And... Um, so there was a certain level of accessibility. And when Paul, I mean, what inevitably happens is when somebody, a rector leaves a church, you think, oh no, they'll never be able to be replaced. Who will we? That happened in the church my grandparents were part of in uh, Northern Virginia. Uh, when John Howe, uh, or when Raymond Wren left Truro, they thought, we'll never replace him. And then they called John Howe. When John Howe came, they said, we'll never replace him. And then they got Martin Minns. And and the same is true here, is that I think there was a lot of trepidation when Paul left. Uh, I wonder who will replace him. And in Paul, in Frank Limehouse's very first sermon, he openly from the pulpit said, uh, he was talking about the struggle with sin and the life of the believer. I think the text was Romans chapter 7. And he said that uh, some of his most unchristian thoughts happened when he was kneeling in the pew before coming forward and taking communion. Now, for a lot of people, they would think, yikes, right? <laughs> Too much information. Uh, but for those of us who are in touch with our own humanity and who we are, I, there's something incredibly refreshing about that, to hear your minister say, this is a struggle, it's real, you're human. Um, it doesn't make it okay, but in fact, you realize that it's, it's not okay, but it's just nice to hear your minister say that. And so there was a collective sigh of relief when people, it, which is sort of funny, some of the craziest thoughts I have in my life are when I'm coming forward to receive communion. <sighs> you know, and yet there was some comfort uh, in that. And a, a lot of people who have been burned by the church through the years uh, have found that me- great comfort in that gospel message. And we see that in Jesus' ministry, him being followed around by sinners and tax collectors, those who had been completely broken and were outside, literally, outside the walls, the institution of of the organized religion of the day. There was something wholly other. And even the people who were involved wanted nothing to do with them. Right? In fact, they were hypercritical of Jesus fraternizing with sinners and tax collectors. So it's in Jesus' ministry. The Advent has a tradition of doing this. Also recently, uh, a poll came out for demographics uh, concerning people and religion. Uh, America is an incredibly religious place. One of the great statistics that I love, and Peter Berger uh, talked about this in one of his books or articles, he said that um, the most religious nation in the world is India. If you want to look at adherence and devotion, India is the, the most secular nation in the world is Sweden. And America can be described as a nation of Indians governed by Swedes. <laughs> and I thought that was very, uh, very true. Uh, but uh, America is, is a, a pretty religious uh, nation, regardless of what uh, the statistics say. And you can read Peter Berger if you want at Boston University. He's very good at this. Um, religion is not on the way out, as a lot of people like Dawkins and others, Christopher Hitchens would say, uh, that uh, it is declining to a degree uh, in places like Western Europe, uh, but it's only declining where it's declining. Right? And that might sound like a very obvious statement, but around the world, it's really not declining at all. And even in Western Europe, you're seeing an upswing in religious adherence because of 
Muslim immigration. Someone said that over there. Probably Jay Menendez. Wasn't you? So Muslim immigration. Uh, and so uh, in the world today, religion plays a big part. And even here in America, religion plays a big part. And at cocktail parties here in Birmingham, uh, one of the questions that is normally asked is what? Where do you go to church, right? You say it in the same breath as, you know, what do you do for a living? Uh, where do you live? Things like that. Uh, so it's, it's not taboo uh, here in Birmingham. And yet, there is a growing demographic in people in their 20s and 30s that Gallup are calling nuns, right? Not N-U-N-S, not the ones that wear the habits that walk around Redmont Park because they have a little place there, but, um, or Mother Angelica, but uh, N-O-N-E-S, those who claim to have no religious affiliation. And it's about, not quite, but almost a third of people in their 20s and 30s claim to be nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that they're atheists, okay? Quite far from it. Uh, they don't claim to be atheists, but what they claim is to have no specific dogma that they adhere to. That is, they say, you know, um, I do yoga on Tuesdays. I've got a Tai Chi thing happening in Triangle Park. And then Fridays, I go to this Bible study that's taught by this person. And, and Sunday, I kind of, you know, I, I might go, I, you know, I might listen to somebody on the radio or the TV. Uh, but it's sort of a well, it's called syncretism, but it, it, it's, it's this sort of mix that they kind of have found their own way, but if you try to pin them down and say, well, are you a Buddhist? Are you a, um, are you a Christian? Uh, no, I'm, I'm none of the above. Uh, I'm none of the above. Uh, and yet, of that third of people in their 20s and 30s, do you know how many people in that demographic grew up in the church? 90%. 90%. So that got my attention. How did they go from growing up in the church to nothing, to nuns, or simply taking what they thought was best and picking and choosing in order to put together what they thought worked best for them? The other thing that happened is that Rod Rosenblatt, who did a men's retreat here uh, several years ago, uh, the CDs that, are, that his talks are on are kind of famous. They make their ways around. Uh, and uh, I encourage you to, to take a listen. But Rod wrote an essay called The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. I would encourage you uh, to read it. He's a Lutheran. And so I think he, and he certainly gets where we're coming from at the Advent. And, and his particular brand of Lutheranism uh, would have a lot of folks in the pews uh, like, like ours. And uh, within that, uh, what he would say is that, and what I'm going to borrow from him a little bit today, is that within this demographic of the nuns or in the, church, in the world today, you have people who have been burned by the church and they can be broken down into two categories, sad ones and mad ones. Uh, people who have been burned by the church to the point that it makes them very sad or people that have been burned by the church to the point that it makes them mad. And most of these folks have grown up in what we might call fundamentalist churches. I'm not trying... It's, it's Christianity. I'm not, not wanting to put them down, uh, but that strand of Christianity tends to produce more sad and mad people than any other. And uh, in fact, there's a group called uh, Fundamentalist, Anon Recovering Fundamentalist Anonymous that you can go to. I'm not joking. Uh, it makes me a little bit mad that there's not like a recovering mainliner uh, anonymous group, uh, but there's not. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that especially with mainline denominations, uh, 
I think the reason why most people don't go away sad or mad from mainline denominations is for the simple reason that most of them there, uh, there isn't enough theology to make people really sad or mad. Right? There's just not enough there. And so that's actually a whole different group where you have people that grew up in mainline denominations like Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, uh, Methodists, who sort of go off in the world and religion is just sort of like one slice of the pie of their life. Right there, and and they think that it's somewhat important, uh, but they'll they'll kind of get back to it when they get married, and then especially when they have kids, uh, they see it sort of as part and parcel of being a good American. Uh, but when it comes to theology, they're really not formed one way or the other. They're just sort of there, and so um, you know th- what. I mean, what may be left with those folks is some sort of semblance of ethics uh, or community involvement. But beyond that, uh, you don't have that. And yet, uh, in some instances, you do. And I'm starting to see that a little bit more in the Episcopal Church, actually, uh, because we're actually moving in a more dogmatic direction that is making people uh, at least sad, not necessarily mad, but sad to the extent that the director of youth ministries for the Diocese of Arizona Right, no bastion of evangelicalism, to say the least. Uh, but the Diocese of Arizona, one of the things that they're really combating right now and what they're dealing with are people who are showing up at their doors that want to be part of a church and, and want to hear the gospel preached, and yet what they're getting is sort of morality or just nothingness really just no no substance to the message and so those people are coming and and then they're going away sad because there's no uh life-giving message that has been preached there's no uh semblance of substance of something that they can hold on to in their lives to help them get through life which is hard enough and so when i say that there are sad people and mad people in christianity rod rosenblatt calls them the sad alumni and the mad alumni of christianity Uh, These are people who Christianity was a very real part of their lives in the past, uh, but now they no longer consciously identify with Jesus and his claim to be God and Savior. And I want to start with the the sad ones. Uh, You see a lot of this in folks that will go off uh, to college. In most and most youth ministries, the Advent being an exception to this, most youth ministries think that they've got their bases covered if they tell the kids, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't, don't sleep around, right? And, and if it, th- that's pretty much the thrust of most youth, most youth ministries. And then they send them off to college where, where those things are. I mean, they're around home, to, but they're much more accessible and you're not under anybody's oversight. And... Uh, and they go off to college, and uh, many of them are right to get involved in certain fellowships and groups like that, and, and that's, that's really great. I, I was very involved in um, Fellowship of Christian Athletes in college, and uh, toward the end of my college time, uh, Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, which is the PCA campus ministry, came on, and I got involved in that. Um, but I remember I was involved very much in young life in high school. Great, wonderful ministry, really helped for me. And I was in a small group with five other guys, and our small group leader was the area director, and he looked at us and said, this time next year, only one of you will be walking with the Lord. 
and it was like a scene out of the New Testament. Surely not, Lord, right? Surely not. Um, and we all looked at one another and we said, you know, we're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to talk to one another. And sure enough, like one out of five was, yeah, one out of five is a pretty good bet. So one out of five, it, only one of us was actually a committed or at least professing Christian after our first year of college. And everybody else went whole hog the other direction. It was just sort of like they went for it. All of them. It wasn't like one of them was like, well, I don't really know what I believe. Everybody was like, ah. And, and, uh, and it was just sort of dumbfounding to me, the one out of the five, sort of sitting back. But as I, the next year in college, it sort of took root for me because I realized that a lot of the campus ministries were just simply reiterating the things that we had learned in youth ministry in high school, which is if you're a Christian, here's what you'll do. And if you're a Christian, here's what you won't do. And if that's what you're doing, you have two options in those campus ministries. One, you either lie, right? So you kind of leave this secret life where you kind of put that stuff uh, off to the side and hope that nobody finds out about you. And when people ask you, well, how are you doing? Praise the Lord, I'm doing great, right? And you, you lie to them. Or two, you simply disappear, you simply bail out. And we all have friends and family who have gone to church for a long time, and then one day you wonder, whatever happened to that person? They just sort of disappeared. And that is because they got sad. They felt that Christianity is all about doing. And so they get to the point where they feel like they're leading, leading these two different lives, struggling, struggling, not sort of intentionally being like, I'm going to be bad now and I'll be good then, but really saying, I really wish I weren't this way. But they go to these campus events and they'd feel so guilty and overburdened that they felt like that their heart was eventually just going to break and they didn't know what to do. And they would hear things like this, true story. One of my good friends was getting married toward the, at the, as soon as she graduated from college and um, her best friend all the way through college had moved up to New York City and a uh, very gifted, bright girl, active and involved in campus ministry. And uh, the rumor, the rumor on the street was that she and her boyfriend uh, were sexually active. Right, that was the, the rumor. And so this girl getting married, uh, I was looking at, um, at the list of people getting married, and I said, oh, well, where's, you didn't ask so-and-so to be, I thought she'd at least be your maid of honor. But, I mean, she didn't, she goes, I don't want anybody like that standing up in, in the wedding with me. I don't want anybody like that. And I thought, good Lord, if you could see in any of our lives, it would be a lonely altar. <laughs> All right. um, uh, uh, so you can see why somebody like our friend in New York City, who may or may not have been up to something like that, uh, and of course in Christianity these days, like that's the worst possible thing that could happen, um, why why they would be sad and broken. Here's somebody that they had a very close friendship with uh, for four years, and the moment that they don't live up to the standard, uh, they're, they're cut loose. There's not even enough care and concern to call and say, what's going on? Uh, what's going on uh, with you? And so uh, there was a point at which some of these folks uh, believed that Jesus was their sin-bearing Savior, uh, but they can no longer believe that. Um, and there are people who just wish that they could still believe in Jesus, uh, but they can't. 
And most of these people, if not many, were broken by the church. And by the church, clearly what I'm meeting is not just the local church, but the church uh, at large, uh, which means uh, not even beyond the sort of fundamentalist brand of Christianity, we all have a part to play in living up um, and answering up uh, to why people have been broken or burned by the church. Now, by the sad alumni of the Christian faith, I mean like my friend uh, who lives up in New York City, uh, who, whose acquaintance with the Christian church was often one in which they helped to move from unbelief or even from suffocating moralism into real saving faith in Jesus. They heard the preaching of God's law. They heard the announcement of Christ's work on their behalf on the cross. And then Jesus, as the one who met the law's demands for them, died for them and died to save them, died to give them eternal life. And they heard this wonderful message of God's grace and the cross and the death of Jesus. They heard of this astonishing good news in Him and so that they can be and are freely forgiven based solely on His death. Well, they heard that Christ's blood redeems sinners, that they buys us out of our self-chosen enslavement, and they come to believe that Christianity is not so much about what is in our hearts as much as it is about what is in God's heart. And this is proven by Christ's atoning death for our sin. And these folks come to believe that the cross of Christ was their salvation for free and forever. But then something happened after that, something that broke them. And in general, I think that what happened is nameable. And I already mentioned my friend in New York City. But in Christianity, you can basically break down um, the way that preaching is done in the church in three ways. One, and I'll just go ahead and say it, is law. And that's just it. I told you of my experience in the Roman Catholic Church. I was dating a girl in New Orleans. And, you know, I mean, the way that it is in New Orleans. If you live in New Orleans, you, you have to be Roman Catholic. But most people in New Orleans are Roman Catholic like the Olive Garden is Italian. So, <laughs> so you, you, you go. And, um, and, of course, all the churches are run by orders. And so there's not like even if they have a name like St. Francis Church or St. Ignatius Church, they always say, oh, that's the Dominican Church or that's the, that's the Carmelite Church. Or I'm looking at somebody from, from New Orleans, so she knows what I'm talking about. So uh, we went to a, the Dominican Church uh, downtown, and uh, this little priest got up, and he looked, and the place was packed, and he looked out, and he said, just get along with one another. Just be nice. And then he turned around and got out. All right, that was it. And uh, it was a great place to go if you wanted in and out, uh, although I went forward uh, for a blessing, and somehow I got stuck with a Eucharistic minister instead. And, uh, and so I went out with my arms crossed, and this lady looks at me, and she just goes, shakes her head no at me. Um, and so I, I went to my seat completely satisfied um, uh, and blessed. Uh, so, I mean, and that's one approach. I mean, just, just tell people what to do. Just... Uh, give them helpful hints for living, tell them how they ought to manage their lives. Uh, honestly, in my experience, is tell me what I already know. Right? I'd love for someone to tell me something I don't know, but when the law is preached, uh, it always hits home because I know how true it is. Right? I need to hear it, uh, but if that's where it's left, uh, that leaves me in discouragement. And you know that that little priest got the pulpit with something on his mind. There clearly was an issue in that congregation that led him to say what he had to say. But let me tell you, I'm sure it didn't get better. I'm sure it didn't get better. 
So that's one approach. Uh, another approach, of course, is uh, the law gospel approach, which is what we have here uh, at the Advent and uh, is the biblical approach to preaching, uh, which is, is the law is preached in its fullness. We don't hold back. Um, we say uh, we're all a complete mess. Uh, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, I tell you, you've heard it said, if you have, uh, if you, um, have lusted... Uh, lust after a woman in your own heart, uh, then you are just as guilty of adultery as the person who's actually committed adultery. Um, but we don't stop there. Then we apply the gospel. We talk about the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus is for lawbreakers. That's, he came to seek and save that which is lost. Right? And then we get down. But here's what happens in the pulpit in a lot of churches. Law, gospel, law. So what happens is the law is preached, then the gospel is preached, and then the law is preached again. Here's a little example of that. Uh, uh, God wants you to manage your finances in a way that honors Him, but also allows you financial security in your life so that you can live free from burden. Right? Law. Right? That's all well and good, but I can't. But here's the deal. What you need to know is that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and that even though finances are really, really hard, uh, there is a sense in which, um, gosh, here I go. I, I should have thought about this sermon before I started preaching, and this is a tricky one. So here's the deal with that, is that Jesus is not sitting up in heaven with his own ledger saying, how is Andrew managing his finances? Is he honoring me in, in what he's doing? Because if he's not... I'm going to dishonor him. Right. God is not out there looking to see. He's not checking your bank account. When I asked Lauren's father's permission for marriage, uh, to marry her, uh, I went with some bank accounts, in hand, my statements in hand, just in case he asked. But he knew that I was broke, so it was fine. Right. God is not like that. God is not like that. And so what you need to do is rest in the freedom of the, of the knowledge of the gospel uh, that Jesus Christ is for you. God didn't come to get your finances together. God came to save all of you. But then normally what happens is, okay, now here's the law addition part. But now how are you going to position yourself in such a way to allow God to take over your life? So, right, uh, oh, crushing, my finances are a mess. Hope, uh, God is in control of the situation. He, he died for me. He's not looking over my shoulder. He knows my heart. And he knows my struggle in trying to honor him in my finances. And yet he forgives me anyway. And there's freedom in that now. Uh, but then that's taken away and dashed because now it's, well, what are you going to do uh, in order to position yourself in such a way to allow your finances to, to honor God? So it's the old, the old um, you, you've basically been tricked. Uh, so that is happening in a lot of churches today. And a lot of people love that because... Um, most people will look for sermons that have a definitive application to it. And at the end of any sermon, and this is what we ask here at the Advent, this has been a long-standing thing here, is after a sermon is preached, the question to ask is, did Jesus have to die for you to preach what you just preached? The answer, answer is no. It, it might have been good advice, right? It might have been good advice, but it probably wasn't good news. 
It might have been very helpful, but it was not necessarily healing. And yet in America today, in the culture in which we live, uh, there is a sense of I want something that's applicable. Well, on the one hand, I can't think of anything more applicable than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? It, it applies to everything. It applies to every uh, part of our life. But such is our heart that we want little things to do. Like just give me something, that I, give me a take home. Give me a takeaway that I can, that I can go home and, and do. And that application part is, is deadly. It's absolutely deadly because what it is is that the gospel's been held out and then all of a sudden it's been thrown back on you. You've got to figure it out. Here are the things that you ought to go home and do. And eventually what happens is you fail in those areas too. Right? You fail in even the most simple of applications. When I was in high school, I struggled with having a quiet time every morning. I was told that the way God wants this done is you have to get up very early in the morning and uh, before I assumed the Lord even got up. And uh, and I struggle with that. I've talked about that struggle in the past. Uh, but I was um, I was told that if you do anything for 21 days, it becomes a habit. Anything for tw- and I found that that is true only with bad habits. <laughs> right? I, I wish I wish it were that easy. But but even in something, it's like it, think about it. It's not that it's not that hard to get up. It's really, it, it is, but like, it's not that hard to get up a half an hour. It's not that hard. And yet, the very thing that I want to do, I find myself incapable of doing. So even though you think, well, this is just the least slightest demand of, of the law on you, uh, even the smallest demand has the ability to absolutely crush you and to make you feel like a loser. I can't even get up a half an hour early. I can't do it. And so when uh, the pastor asks you the next week, How'd your first seven days go? Again, you have the option to either lie or to avoid that person at all costs. And so there are so many uh, who, uh, and in our church today, and this is true even uh, in, uh, as Christians, uh, and there's some disagreement about this, but uh, one of the things that the reformers came up with uh, when it came uh, to the use of the law is like, what is the law for? Right, what's it for? Uh, here at the Advent, in our preaching, uh, in our teaching, uh, we would agree with Luther and Cranmer in that, and the English reformers, that the primary function of the law is to crush you, right? I mean, the primary purpose is to drive you uh, to the cross, to make you aware that you are in need uh, of a Savior. And yet, uh, a lot of people uh, will preach what is often called the third use of the law, which is, what is the will of God for me as a Christian day by day? Well, that's not a bad question to ask. God, what do you want to do with my life? And yet, uh, it's sort of like when you first become Christians, the gospel is okay, but as you get farther along, and Joe did a great job of talking about this this morning in the pulpit, as you move along, uh, you feel like you need to graduate to Christianity 200 and Christianity 300 and Christianity 400 and Christianity f- and on and on and on. And it's sort of like you're ready to, you're ready to take on some solid food. You're ready to take on... Uh, the, the bigger issues. Uh, and yet, um, what is always put before us uh, is, is the gospel. And uh, it's not as if, you know, when you're first a Christian, you say, we want you to know that Jesus Christ died for you. And after you're a Christian for a while, we say, okay, you've, you've heard that long enough. Now you need to start doing this. You really need to start getting involved. And our hearts move in that direction. If you were converted later in life, uh, no zeal like a convert zeal. Right, you, you you get you get 
you become a Christian and you want to get super involved in the church. And so all of a sudden you go from not a Christian to being a Christian to serving Lenten lunches, singing in the choir, working with the acolytes, um, doing hospital. I, I mean, I've never seen anybody do it by half half measure. And those people sort of go gung-ho, and then they begin to realize, this is a lot. And rather than feeling the freedom to come forward and say, I bit off more than I can chew, I'd like to back off a little bit, uh, most people just disappear. And they bail out because they're afraid that if they step away and they tell people, I need to pull back a little bit, that that'll be some kind of reflection on their Christian belief. That people will look at them and say, well, gosh, I, I, thought, I thought that you were a Christian. Well, when I was working at a Young Life camp one summer, I was in the pit crew. And uh, at the beginning of the, the summer, I was told about uh, the pit challenge. And it's pretty gross, so be ready for this. Um, the pit challenge was you put an apple or a spoon or something, because after you rinse all the dishes in the pits, uh, everything you rinse off goes into the bottom of the sink. And it eventually, after 400 meals three times a day, it accumulates. And you put something in the bottom of the sink, and you have to go bob for it. Okay, that's the pit challenge. And it's sort of like when you move into any house in college. At first, you're like, this place is gross. And by the end of it, you're walking around barefoot. You could care, you know, it's easy. It's, it's not a big deal. And uh, so by the end of the summer, we're like, oh, this is, this is cake, and uh, we could do this. And we're about to do it, and this girl walks in from Cincinnati, Ohio. I still remember her. And she said, looked at this grossness and looked at us, and she said, guys, what would Jesus do? And she walked out. And I thought, what an idiot. I mean, I mean... <laughs> I mean, that's like asking, would Jesus play basketball? Would you, uh, I mean, it was just, but you see what I'm saying, that there are Christians out there that sort of want to psycho, I mean, they analyze everything to the extent and apply the law to everything, that even something like that could be, un, like, it's unchristian. Really? Is it? Is it unchristian to do something like that? And so being surrounded with Christian believers like that, who can blame people for going away sad? Rod Rosenblatt um, gives, in a Christian context, this great mechanism of, of people who become sad in Christianity. And I'm just going to quote him. Uh, one, you come to believe that you've been justified freely because of Christ's shed blood. Two, freely for the sake of Jesus' innocent sufferings and death, God has forgiven your sin, adopted you as a son and daughter, reconciled Himself to you, you to Himself, given you the Holy Spirit, and so on. Scripture promises these things. Verses like, be ye perfect as your father, heavenly Father is perfect, seem now, at first read, to finally be possible now that you are equipped for it. Or you hear St. Paul as he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You realize that you might have had some excuse for failure when you were a pagan, but that's over. Now you have been made a part of God's family, have become the recipient of a thousand of His free gifts, and then the unexpected Sin continues to be a part of God's family. I'm sorry. Sin continues to be a part of my life. Stubbornly won't allow me to eliminate it the way I expected. And then continuing sin on my part seems to be just evidence that I'm not really a believer at all. If I really were a believer, this thing would work. And so maybe it didn't take the first time, but maybe the second time, and so forth. Well, most of us have uh, 
maybe ex- had friends who have experienced that if we've not experienced it ourselves. And again, we only have ourselves to blame in some sense. Uh, even as children, uh, we are taught that Christianity is primarily about behaving yourself in victory in those moments. When I was a child, uh, I can remember vividly uh, the children's lessons there where this lady uh, once stood up at the front of the church with a large bowl and a tube of toothpaste, and she asked us to squeeze it out, which was great fun. I loved it. And, uh, and I remember squeezing it out, and everyone's trying to get every last drop of toothpaste out. And then she said, now put it back in. Well, of, of course we couldn't. And then she looked at us, and she said, and that's what happens when you speak ill of people? or you blaspheme, or say something that God doesn't like, you can never, ever get it back in. Let us pray. Right. <laughs> I remember that. Um, and it's amazing the things that, that, that stick to you as a kid. And so uh, even now, like even though I know that um, what she's saying, uh, it was a bad lesson. But, uh, I mean, I... I I understand what she's saying that, yeah, like James said, like on one hand, the tongue praises the Lord and then the next moment it, it blasphemes. Uh, but, but this whole notion of that it's for, that toothpaste is forever out there, never to be taken away, really, um, it might have actually worked a little bit to make me afraid and to sort of keep it in. Uh, but again, what Jesus says is that ultimately, like uh, the toothpaste is getting out of the tube, whether you, it's going to get squeezed one way or the other. Uh, but I've come... And I take the toothpaste away. I clean it up. I I make it right. I I do what you are incapable uh, of doing uh, for yourself. And uh, for some reason, we never tell children that. Uh, Most Bible school curriculum is full of toothpaste-type lessons. Uh, Case in point, I recently had a diocesan council meeting, which I mentioned last week, and um, and I'll, I'll bring the story up again. But... Uh, the the person who uh, who had a really hard time uh, with with on the cross where Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied and the whole idea of God's wrath and then somebody else spoke up and said but I do think it's so important that we that we teach children the truth uh, we've got to teach these kids what's right and and what's wrong so they can grow up to be good and decent people. And uh, I've been praying for that lady's church ever since uh, because uh, we know that when you squeeze toothpaste out in the bowl, uh, you create lawbreakers uh, who either just leave the church sad um, or they lie. And so there are lots of people who have grown up in the church who just have totally thrown it off uh, because they feel like they can't live up to the standard uh, that God has called them to live up to. And they're right about that except that what they haven't heard is that the gospel is enough to even save Christians. The gospel is enough to even save Christians. Well, the next group, the sad alumni, a little bit easier, and we can, we can uh, sort of fly through that. The mad group. Well, what I would say about uh, the mad alumni of Christianity are these folks who have really, really had a hard go of it at church, and they've really taken it to the nth uh, degree. Uh, you see that in the movie Footloose. Remember that? That's such a great movie to... Uh, to uh, 
John Lithgow, remember, he plays the minister who is just uh, literally hell-bent on making sure that nobody dances uh, in, in his town in Indiana. And, uh, and Rod Rosenblatt says, and I agree with him, it would have been a much better movie had his wife been the pastor, um, John Lithgow's wife in the movie. That would have been actually okay. But instead, I mean, he really plays the part of the worst possible thing that you can do uh, is dance. And, of course, what did that make all the kids do? Even the ones who were terrible dancers. Remember that one character? He was awful. And he was like, like, that, like the moment that happened, he was really, really into uh, dancing. And what it created was this rebellious nature of people who were simply mad about church and wanted absolutely nothing to do about it. And so those who are mad, who are struggling, these are the people who actually don't lie and don't necessarily go away sad, but they actually begin to engage in the church and they go and they talk to their Christian friends and they try to figure out, well, what's the way forward? And so when they come to us and say, well, Christianity just isn't working well for me, we say, well, maybe you're not reading your Bible enough. Maybe you're not praying enough or maybe you're, you're not praying in the right way. Maybe you're not attending enough church stuff. Maybe you're not making right use of fellowship. Uh, you name the prescription. You fill in the blanks any way you want to. Uh, but bottom line is that we say, well, maybe you're just not doing this Christian thing right. You need to do it better or do it right so that it would work. But in the same case, Christianity seemed not to deliver on its promises. It didn't work. As they see it, they gave it every shot, and Christianity failed to deliver. And then to boot, they were called guilty for not doing it right. And these people feel not just disappointed, they feel betrayed, they feel conned, and they are deeply angry about it. Well, is there anything that we can do that is of genuine help to angry people that are alumni of Christianity? Well, I think that one of the things that when we encounter in the culture is that a lot of people will say, like the Doobie Brothers song, uh, Jesus is just all right with me. Right? Jesus I'm okay with, the church not so much. And I think that it's okay for us in the church to have to be okay with that. Because right? I think that there, is a, there are instances in which the church has failed miserably and utterly in reaching those who, have been, who are mad alumni of Christianity. And where we failed, and we've done it in the past, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's on the same scale as, uh, as like the Crusades or something like that, and yet its spiritual damage is just as bad. Um, but here are people who have been betrayed by the church, and especially for ordained ministers, ooh, like, I mean, it's a knee-jerk reaction. It's like you're talking about my mom. Like, well, wait a minute. Get, you know, I want to I defend the church rather than hearing the person out, and especially if they're saying something like, look, I'm great with Jesus, but I'm really mad at the church. It's okay for us to say, join the crowd, <laughs> right? Because all of us at any given time have been burned by the church, Right? And the church is not what we worship. We worship Jesus Christ, right? who came in order to save the church, even from itself. And so there's a sense in which we can be a little too sensitive about the church. And after all, church membership is not what saves us. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote uh, in uh, The Last Battle this really great uh, passage and if you read anything from the day, uh, it really ticked uh, people off when he included this. Let me see if I can find my little quote. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, that um, 
put it, there are going to be a lot of surprises at the end of the age because there are going to be those people that, that there in heaven that we just don't imagine will be there. Think of the non-Israelite that C.S. Lewis purposely put in heaven at the end of the last battle. But read what Aslan says to him. I suppose you're wondering why you're here. And then tells him why. There are going to be in heaven believers in Jesus who never darken the door of a church. Now that's no, no encouragement not to attend, not to be baptized, not to come forward for communion. It's just saying that faith in Jesus saves, saves all by itself, nude, apart from works. There are going to be scads of Roman Catholics, people who never listened, not really to the theology being preached by that little Dominican priest, but just believed in the sufficiency of Jesus' blood, no matter what their priest or minister was preaching. People of all sorts who just believed in Jesus and His blood shed for them, for complete payment for their sin. There are going to be call girls. There are going to be drug dealers, maybe even a couple lawyers. There are going to be members of the cults who never really got what the cult leaders taught, but just trusted that Jesus' blood and the cross was for their sin and for their hatred of God, for their wickedness. Surprises, lots of surprises. Rosenblatt says, It bugs me to say it, but there might even be a couple of IRS employees, maybe a congressman or congresswoman. Everyone has some class of people they really don't want to die as believers in Jesus. And yet, that is the promise of the Scriptures and what Jesus came to save, that naked faith in Jesus is enough. And it may be that we are given the opportunity for those mad alumni of Christianity to simply show them the love of Jesus and to stand on the gospel message that faith in Jesus is enough and that we as the church are indeed a hospital for sinners, not a club for the righteous. Questions, comments, concerns about sad or mad people? So when, when Christ founds the church, when he, mm. when he establishes the church, uh, what is he doing? Mm. Um, what is the church? Yeah, when, yeah so uh, <clears throat> the church is, is the assembly of believers. Uh, well, this is, what, this is how the Reformers would define it. I'll give you this strict, but then I'll, we'll talk practical. Uh, our... Um, a church where believers are assembled, where the gospel is, is preached and the sacraments are rightly and duly administered. That's the definition of the church in the 39 articles. And so one of the things that the Church of England, the Anglican Church, doesn't does is it doesn't unchurch other churches in the way some other churches do. So that's why in, in our tradition, like, of course Presbyterians are the church, of course Methodists, of course Baptists are the church. Um, but in establishing the church, I mean, what it, I guess it depends what the church feels like it's called to do. I think that's the real question, because I think that the church often prides itself on being right, and it is the defender of the faith. That's one of the things that it does. But the church, as Paul says in Ephesians, like the relationship in marriage, is supposed to illustrate to the world how much God loves them and willing to lay themselves down for the sake of the other person. And so really what it ought to model is, sin and dysfunction in the life of the church and yet grace and forgiveness in the life of the church, especially at its local level. So I think that, that being the church is not so much about 
about modeling and, and sweeping under the rug and feeling like we need to be right all the time, all that doesn't mean at all that we're downplaying any, any doctrines that we hold dear and true, like the gospel, I mean, who Jesus Christ is. Uh, but it would, what it does mean is that, um, uh, that we exist for a purpose, and that is to, is to, like Jesus, to go out and seek and preach salvation to that which is lost and, and not this sort of fortress mentality that, that often develops in the church. Or to add anything to the gospel, heaven forbid. I didn't leave a lot of time for questions. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, some of us today are sad and mad, uh, but Lord, we pray that you would meet us uh, where we are, that we'd be willing to be honest with ourselves, uh, but above all, Lord, that we would seek you out, and Lord, you would reveal yourself as you are, and that we would put our trust in in you, and Lord, that you would have mercy on us, the church, uh, that apart from you, we can do nothing, and that we might believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.